but sometimes I meet people in Kentucky and I'm like, you might have killed a guy. <laughs> so I'm I'm just saying, I was here like I'm totally agree. Week, week two, I'm here and I'm hearing stories about people's family members murdering other people. Like week two on the farm, and I'm just like, no one was a murderer in that situation in that circle of people. But adjacent to these people, there was more than a handful. It wasn't just like one, it was like multiple people saying yeah i know a guy who did you know and so stuff like that's like yeah i might need to carry a gun more often here uh people are t- i'm not being i'm like being 100 percent honest like that is a conversation like i i one of the guys was talking about it <laughs> all right go for it Welcome back to another episode of the Agriculture Podcast. And today, uh, we're driving back from the Kentucky Commodity Conference. I got Clayton in the truck with me, and we've been up there all day um, being advocates for agriculture in the, uh, in the Kentucky Conference, actually just visiting and networking and uh, listening to a few interesting speakers. And um, yeah, just a full day of agriculture. And uh, what do you think about today, Clayton? Um, it's way more at a local level than I feel like I should be involved in that, especially as someone who doesn't <laughs> live in the state. Um, you know, but I find that stuff interesting. So I am not a member of like Iowa soy or Iowa corn or anything like that. Um, I've thought about joining, but it's just like after, you know, I pay dues or whatever, it's like, I don't even grow this stuff. Like it, you know, it's, it, it would purely be paying for access to a network, which I just don't think is, I don't think that's. I would feel unintegral doing that, especially as someone who's done, oh my gosh, you guys dump salt on your roads here. We just drove by a salt truck, but you guys, that's too much salt. I don't know if, <laughs> I'm from Iowa, that's too much. Like that's that's a, that's a waste. Tell He's your, dumping his whole load out. <laughs> I thought it was snow on the road. Um, anyways, I thought it was uh, pretty interesting. I don't listen to too much of the grain marketing talk. Um, but it has been, I talked about this on our my podcast right before this, Brazil has been a constant conversation in all the grain market talks recently. Um, if you're listening to anyone talking about grain, they're talking about Brazil in some factor, just because they are such a huge um, exporter of soybeans and corn and now cotton. And now Argentina is apparently coming to the question. Argentina is also growing a ton of stuff and being exporting a ton of things. Um, so all that stuff is interesting to me. Uh, let's see. Got to hang out with your buddy Brandon. He was on the podcast last week when you guys were listening to this. Pretty interesting. Seems like a fun fellow. Seems like the type of guy that uh, would be really fun to go on a week-long hunting trip with. Or, yeah, he's an interesting you know, fella. That'd be a fun one to spend like a week out at his farm during planting season or something. That might be fun. Um, yeah, but other than that, it was good. I sat on my laptop and got a lot of work done uh, while I was listening to things or waiting for Neil. Um so we were at FarmCon about a week ago, and, you know, I mean, the, the difference in FarmCon and, like, a state-level conference like what we're at today is FarmCon, you're bringing out uh, you're a really high-level thinker from all around the country into one venue, you know. And Kentucky has a lot of great advocates and a lot of great uh, farmers and ag businessmen but it's it's a different feel than what you're going to get at AgCon or what you're going to get at uh, the National Farm Machine Show or the Com- uh, Commodity Classic. Um, it's a much more uh, 
you know, it's a pretty, Kentucky farmers are a pretty small group. We, the people that attend this conference usually attend it uh, every year. So we're a fairly tight knit group. We all know each other and it's just a different feel than what you'd get at FarmCon. We don't get as many vendors there as like what FarmCon would have or the National Farm Machine Show. They're mostly local. And um, so yeah, for Clayton, who is, I, 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 I call him now, he's semi-native Kentuckian because he's spending a couple times a month down here. And it seems like we're always on some kind of uh, mission to go somewhere. Um, so he is a semi-native Kentuckian. We're gonna try to steal him out of Iowa at some point. Uh, you're not convincing. You're not convincing Laura that anytime soon. Laura would come if. All right. So Laura is Clayton's wife, and uh, she hasn't been to Kentucky yet. But we're trying to get her down there, and I think also she's, she's going to come week of Farm Machine. Okay. Show, so uh, so Laura's coming the Farm Machine Show week. I think if we can ever get her in Kentucky, she might love it. I don't know, man. She really likes Iowa. <laughs> So I'm, what still, is, okay. I'm still fixing for Montana. Okay, so, so for all you Iowa guys, and I, I know there's there's more farmers and more ag businessmen in Iowa than in Kentucky. What advantages does Iowa have on Kentucky? Uh, if you own land, you are a wealthy man. <laughs> if you grow corn, you grow good corn. Um, if you like farming in squares. It's really easy to farm in squares. <laughs> um, this is kind of like bashing Iowa a little bit. Uh, real talk, we do have some, we like, agriculture is the absolute powerhouse of Iowa. Um, the cities, it doesn't feel that way, but the moment you step anywhere outside of any city, I mean, that state is run by agriculture. I mean, it makes up a large percentage of the jobs in our state because even if you're not a farmer, you are working for some form of co-op, some sort of ag business that's based out of there. I mean, Des Moines has a ton of headquarters for ag businesses. Um, we have Iowa State, which is like a world-class agriculture college. USDA's got a facility right down the road from them. They're doing tons of crazy research there. Um, we also get really good, we, we have the perfect amount of rainfall to- uh, Hold on, hold on now. I'm talking about, okay, you're, you're telling me why Iowa is a better corn state than Kentucky. Well, obviously. And I, I, will, I will agree with that wholeheartedly. A better farming state, but are you better culturally than Kentucky? So I grew up in California. Uh, everything's pretty much a step up culture-wise when you leave that state, just as far as like people being nice to you and having conversations. Um, I think people are actually genuinely nicer in Kentucky. The Midwest nice is very strong in Iowa. You will always get courteous conversation from people. They might not actually give a rip about who you are sometimes. Um, so other than that, are you think are are you saying do you think uh, Kentucky has nicer people people than Iowa as a whole? I'm not talking about individuals. I'm just talking about if you went to a, a conference in Iowa, would it be as easy to talk to people as you've experienced as it is in Kentucky? Yes. But sometimes I meet people in Kentucky and I'm like, you might have killed the guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm just saying, I was here like I totally agree. Week, week two, I'm here <laughs> and I'm hearing stories about people's family members murdering other people. <laughs> like week two on the farm and I'm just like, 
no one was a murderer in that situ in that circle of people. But adjacent to these people, there was more than a handful. It wasn't just like one. It was like multiple people saying, "Yeah, I know a guy who did." You know, and so stuff like that's like, yeah, I might need to carry a gun more often here. Uh, people are. T- I'm not being. I'm like being a hundred percent honest. Like that is a conversation. Like I, I one of the guys was talking about it. It's just. No, I totally agree. Like, you're going to come uh, into Kentucky, and you're going to be like, look at, uh, there, there's there's a percentage of our state's population that you're looking at, and you're like, what does that guy have going on? <laughs> That's just part of Kentucky. Okay, so now we've talked about the people a little bit. Talk about, you know, like, when you're just out and about in your travels throughout Kentucky, I mean, it's a beautiful state. Like, we have topography, and we have uh, a a lot of beautiful, like, architecture and buildings and history. And um, do you see Iowa as being similar to that, or better than that, worse than that? Most of Iowa, no. Um, Northeast Iowa, where I used to farm, is gorgeous, like, especially fall when the leaves start to change. I mean, one of my favorite memories is driving the combine, or driving the grain cart behind the combine as we're opening up the edges of a field next to, like, this tree line, like... To this day, some of the prettiest things I've ever seen have been on this one farm in Iowa, like beautiful canyons and creeks running through it, beautiful cow pastures that you wouldn't know exist there. Um, kind of northeast Iowa, starting to get closer to Wisconsin. With all of that said, I lived in Montana long enough to say that nothing in the Midwest really compares to like staring at a mountain range like that or like. I, hold on, I totally agree. Like, we're both in the same. Uh, I'm saying you're trying to thought here that the West is the most beautiful in our country. What I'm trying to compare now is the ability of a woman to live in Iowa, in Moline, or uh, that area you're in, the Quad Cities. You know, versus... Laura, Laura's going to listen. Laura does not listen to any of this. She's going to listen to this one for sure, and she's just, she's not going to move. <laughs> she might. I if she ever came to Kentucky, she might be like, my that wife is the my, most beautiful state I've ever been in, Sands, my, Idaho, and my, Washington. My wife gets is comforted by cornfields. Like <laughs> she likes being able to see that far in a flat ground. Like it's comforting to some people. Also, she's made it clear to me that living within ten to fifteen minutes of Walmart and Chick Fil A are pretty important to where we live. So when I say I want to move to Montana one day and live an hour and a half from Walmart, like doesn't go over very well you get used to it guys if you've never lived that far away from a walmart i spend so much less or more money now that i live in a city close to grocery stores you get look anyways all that to say is i don't think she would move she likes iowa too much her parents live too close the rest of her family lives too close and we're moving somewhere we got to get far enough away (laughs) from the midwest for it to be worth it we'll just bring the whole family to kentucky (laughs) no that's not gonna happen no i mean uh when I build our portable studio that I have built in a shipping container, it's attached to a 40-foot gooseneck trailer that, you know, can be moved within a few hours. Maybe it'd be like, oh, I've spent a week here with the family sort of thing, but no one wants to live in a shipping container. I, I just, I also, I just don't want to, it's, it's humid. You guys don't get enough snow for me. I do like plowing snow. Um, You're not going to see much snow in our western end of the state. We do have a little dust right now, but... Generally, overall, the, my area, Kentucky, and the very, you know, we're very far west and pretty far south, uh, experience a couple inches of snow a year. Most of the time, it's a dust or less. 
And to be honest, if we get winter precipitation, it's usually freezing rain. Uh-huh. And <laughs> so, the entire state shuts down. Yes, and yeah, the entire state cannot stand. In, we have no infrastructure for winter weather, or at least on my western end. We cannot tolerate winter weather. And people uh, are going to drive right into the ditch as soon as we have it. So, yeah, that, uh, you know, I mean, Kentucky is a... Uh, it's a very interesting state, and uh, I don't know why Laura wouldn't want to see double wides with another camper pulled up beside it. <laughs> so you just said it right there. <laughs> if I was going to own farmland, Kentucky is on the table compared to Iowa land prices. Like, I was talking to a guy today, I was like, yeah, our, our land prices in Kentucky are getting pretty high, and I live like 30 minutes from some of the highest land prices in the country right now, <laughs> and I just, anytime it's like, yeah, we're up to like 11,000 an acre, I'm just like... Pfft. Yeah. Not no, like it's just like I think we had like a thirty-six thousand acre farm sell like thirty minutes away last year. It's just like thirty-six thousand dollars an acre for farmland. Like you can't make money on that at that point. Um, yeah, for my business also being in Iowa is very strategic in the sense it's like okay within four hours I can reach four Midwest states that all are heavily reliant on agriculture. I have Des Moines an hour and a half, two hours away. I have Ames with Iowa State, also an hour and a half, two hours away. I live in Waterloo Cedar Falls, whether I like it or not, John Deere is there and that brings in a lot of other businesses and companies. Um, you know, Moline's not too far away, Caterpillar's not too far away. Um, you know, tons of manufacturing in Iowa, lots of like, uh, like aftermarket parts manufacturers based at, like Iowa is still a very strong manufacturing state. People don't talk about that a lot, but you drive through some of these small towns and you just see this massive warehouse that has like 60 cars pulled up. It's like, oh, this factory employs half of this town because they're producing this one product for this certain industry. And so it's a very strategic place for at least the Midwest division of the business now. Um, if we ever did a Western division, it would be probably Montana or Idaho or something like that. Sure. Kentucky just doesn't fit into my map. You know, if I roll out, <laughs> if I roll out a map on my floor, you know, unless I was shipping cargo, I don't think I really need to live here. <laughs> you know. You know, that's the. I love to promote my state, and uh, and I love. I know we know, were just at a meeting with a hundred yeah. other people, all all who agree with you. Yeah, we we love Kentucky, and uh, we love to talk about how much we love Kentucky. Um, but no, I, I know it, like you're logistically situated perfect for your business. And, um, and this is the one, uh, thing about Kentucky that, you know, is a little bit of a hindrance is, especially in my Western, uh, like we're surrounded by four rivers. So uh -huh. we only have certain points of entry in and out of our, uh, geographical area. And we have a very small area, you know, so not a lot of shopping, not a lot of uh, uh, things to do. And you got to travel outside of that area to get into, um, you know, other opportunities at shopping or uh, other industries. And, you know, that's, it can be a problem. So, yeah. yeah it's just any rural, rural area, though. Yeah. With that said, sometimes I drive over those bridges and I'm just like, man... For how critical this is to some of the infrastructure in this state, it looks a little old. <laughs> oh, like uh, our Ohio River Bridge that uh, crosses over to Cairo, Illinois, and we cross it every day on our semis. I mean, 
the bridge literally looks like it could fall in any day. And I, I totally believe that, you know, one day one of our trucks are going to pull up to the bridge <laughs> and the bridge deck is going to be gone. I mean, it's just, it's, it is a matter of time before it falls in the river. All it would take is a, I, you know, they keep saying that our area is going to experience a major earthquake. Well, it wouldn't take a major one to knock that one into the <laughs> river. <laughs> I feel like at any bar, any moment, a barge can hit it. And, you know, a couple times a year, it usually does hit the bridge. And the bridge is just going to fall like a stack of dominoes. Well, the other one's been down for maintenance for a while. Yeah, right? the, the, okay, Missouri. so right there in our area, we have one that crosses the Ohio. And then you jump across the river uh, from the Kentucky to the Illinois side. And it leapfrogs. Uh, the Mississippi River, you know, on a bridge to Missouri. So that is equally uh, in as bad or worse a shape. Matter of fact, when I take my wife and kids across it, they close their eyes <laughs> <laughs> and try not to look or hear because it looks so scary. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, we do have a lot of things going for our state. We also have some, you know, we have we have some problems in our state, too. Um, that's every state, though. Yeah, that's every state. I you mean, know when uh, they passed that last infrastructure bill through uh, Congress? You know what I immediately went and did? I immediately went and invested in a uh, index fund full of infrastructure companies. I was like, everything in the U.S. is falling apart. At some point, they will fix that bridge, and hopefully at some point, I will make some sort of return on that. Because I was just <laughs> yeah. like... I, I, that's a that's a criticism that I see on the internet that sometimes like oh that's blown out of proportion that the me the media is like oh our infrastructure falling apart or like other countries like oh the U.S.'s infrastructure just can't handle it that's one of those things I travel enough to vouch for is like our infrastructure for how big our country is has held together phenomenally well. With that said, we could definitely use some scheduled maintenance on a lot of the U.S.'s bridges, roads, and highways. We We're, we'll get there. But it's just, it's a lot. There's a lot of concrete out there that we've poured over the past hundred years, and it, it needs some help. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, like those bridges, they're in dire need of maintenance. And, you know, it's more than just uh, you can band-aid in a little summer project or whatever. You know, that bridge, uh, the, the Ohio River Bridge, is getting so much traffic that in the next five years, it is going to have to be replaced. And I'm, I'm sure that's not the only one, you know, along the Ohio River that needs to be replaced. But yeah, those projects take five, like there's a, so I, my, my wife's family, her dad's from Canada. So we go visit her dad's side of the family usually once a year. And so if you're driving up through, uh, driving up through Detroit to go over their one bridge there, they've been building the adjacent bridge to open more shipping lanes for like six or seven years now and yes. it's still this this super critical like shipping between us and canada like right there is a super critical point in like our u.s infrastructure especially like moving transit across borders like that's a big deal and it's taken them so long to finish that other bridge just so the other one can even have some more mate like there was at one point where there was a one lane bridge moment on that bridge it was like man this is like crazy that like something this important yeah a key point of the entry like that is down to one lane down to one lane oh it's crazy it's a it's a it's really fascinating and i uh it it is a marvel to look at how like at least mile wise how wide the u.s is and how much infrastructure we have built on that it is a testament to human engineering and the mechanical engineering that went behind all the machines we used to build like the u.s road system guys this country takes 
like, oh, I bet it's probably 45 hours to drive across from one side to the other, going like 70, 80 miles an hour. Guys, it takes, imagine how long it took to carve the place, like the area to build those roads in. Oh my, it's just driving through the states of like, well, we were talking about this earlier. Like if you're driving through Colorado or Idaho or Montana or Wyoming and uh, you're crossing all these mountain passes and all these difficult uh, like elevations, mm-hmm. the amount of uh, strategic development that it's took to uh, carve these roads across, I mean, it's unbelievable feat. And I think that's uh, a testament to the success of America is, you know, like our infrastructure is one of the things that sets us apart versus the other countries of the world. It's just, we have such a phenomenal level level of infrastructure. You look at, uh, so China has been a major investor in third world countries not even investor lender they lend a lot of money to developing countries because china has made a lot of money but now that's biting them in the butt anyways china about 15 20 years ago and even now has spent a ton of money building the same things we built 60 70 years ago really good roads really good highways rail lines places to move stuff in between, investing in ports so they can export more things. And that has just absolutely skyrocketed their economy because now all these goods that are produced now have access to wider markets. And that is something that, like, if you're a developing country, you know, most economists will look at a developing country and say, if they that government would dump a couple billion dollars into infrastructure, it would return X amount of dollars on building that infrastructure and they would make it back in taxes in X amount of years. And that's what the U.S. did. Like, that was kind of, you know, going back to the Great Depression we were talking about in my podcast an hour ago. Um, one of the things FDR did was say, well, let's start building some roads. Let's pour some of this government money back into our country to make more tax dollars to give people jobs and stimulate the economy. And that's exactly what it did. You know, we poured a bunch of money into building these roads and these highways to connect a bunch of people to move more goods, to move money around, to stimulate the economy, and for the government to eventually make that money back they spent on roads in taxes. And that's the whole goal behind it. But, you know, looking at a country the size of the U.S. and how many millions of miles of roads we have, like, yeah, it just takes a lot of time to do stuff like that. And I know Africa, I know Africa as a continent in general has been investing probably trillions into roads because that's Africa is going to be that next continent that's just going to skyrocket in productivity in the next two decades and they know hey we're going to start producing more goods we're going to have a larger economy what do we need to do to support that economy build places to move all that stuff yeah ultimately if you can't move the product you're producing then what good is the product Uh you know I mean we have to have our critical infrastructure as in roads and rail and airports and ports, uh, water ports, um, to be able to get those goods to market fast and efficient. And because ultimately, if you don't, the transportation cost uh, of the good, you know, eats up all the profit margin. So, uh, yeah, it's key that that we begin to address some of these uh <laughs> some of these deficiencies that we're seeing in our infrastructure now just from uh, lack of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. it's crazy how reliant the world is on hard goods and shipping. Like, I think uh, 
if one thing like the when that ship got stuck in the Suez Canal two years ago I think that was a and COVID too it's just like oh man that infrastructure stops moving the world halts everything everything just is like it was I mean it for like the it was weeks before they got the backlog of ships back oh yeah again. it cost it cost the US the world the world economy billions upon billions of dollars because something couldn't move that was it all it was done it was stuck and ships couldn't get through this major shipping lane it is you know one of the big problems right now in the world economy is uh, you've got uh, the Houthis that are lobbing bombs at you know with the ships coming through the Red Sea well the alternative to that is to sail around the entire coast of Africa you know mm -hmm. to get access to that side of the world so if you don't want your ship that's uh, holding a hundred billion dollars in goods to get a missile lobbed at them you've got what did that uh, I think we heard today that one just one of those ships incurred an extra 10 million in shipping cost oh yeah just one I was floored by that I was watching a video the other night this uh, this guy committed insurance fraud on a hundred million dollar oil tankers this thing cost a hundred million dollars to uh, build and at that same time was hauling a hundred million dollars worth of crude oil in it that's 200 million dollars just floating around in the ocean that some guy wanted an insurance claim for and so he had it lit on fire it's crazy like you know it's just like that's just the crazy you think about how if you guys have ever been to the ocean you probably have seen how big one of those ships are at some point if you haven't they are huge like three to four football field size ships if you hadn't you should take uh, and go to one of our uh you know our ports and take a look at those super packs they are something to see i mean like when like if you're around that mobile like the uh mobile bay in alabama you can see a lot of oil and stuff leaving the ports and the ships that are out on the horizon i mean they're un I, like you if, can't imagine want, the size you, of these if things. you want to think about how insignificant you are in the grand yeah. scheme of the world go stand next to one of those ships and understand that one of those ships carries like a thousand lifetimes worth of product and revenue that like most human beings will ever like come close to touching in their entire life it's just crazy how big they really are it really is and it just goes to show you how big our world is you know like you get focused on your uh little part of the uh world or geography that you're in and you don't realize how vast and how many people are in our world you know like our country is big but you go to china or to india or to uh one of these other um, countries and their populations are in 10 times what ours is and uh so that requires 10 times the amount of goods that a country like ours needs so it yeah it is mind-blowing how big a world we live in and testifies to the world superpower the u.s government has become because somehow out of all that we have generated the most revenue as a country ever and somehow have managed to keep a population of 330 million people relatively well fed for 100 years now it's crazy it's wild and I think it, you know, a big part of our success 
not only in our infrastructure, but just in our country as a whole, is the ability to keep the country, you know, well-fed and powered uh, through energy in, in our homes and our cars um, with, you know, really easy access to the things we need to operate in a day-to-day -day situation. Yeah. It, it, it gives us a lot of stability. And, uh, and with that stability, uh, when people are fed and, uh, you know, and they're comfortable, then they can be, you know, they're more apt to go out and start business. And, you know, they're further in society with, because they're able to be comfortable, you know. So it is, I mean, one of the reasons that the U.S. is so successful is because we've had such a great ability to feed our population and for our population to be comfortable. You know, they're warm during the winter, they're cool during the summer, uh, and they can be highly productive because of that. Uh-huh. It's crazy. Yep. Like, we, uh, the reason heart disease is the number one killer in the U.S. is not because uh, meat is bad. It's because... Whether it's good, it's not a good thing that people die of heart disease. That's the number one killer. It, but it's just a testament to the fact, like, hey, we have food in such an abundance and such a such abundance and affordable that it is very easy to eat yourself, to, like quote unquote, eat yourself to death in this country. Oh, you definitely could. Like, I guess there's people that do. For, for thousands of years, the only people who have had that luxury are rulers and incredibly, incredibly wealthy people. Like every like. It's only in the past 150 years that people have not had to work for their own food that they eat. It is absolutely crazy how far we have come since the Industrial Revolution and the invention of a machine like the tractor. Like, we have it so easy, guys. Like, so easy. We were talking today, it was negative 40 wind chill in Iowa last week and I was plowing snow. I was telling my brother-in-law you know, we were sitting in my truck after getting these machines started. It took forever in the cold. And so our hands were freezing. We we're like sitting in my nice warm truck. It was just keeping us warm. And I was like, David, a hundred years ago, we would have just lost our hands to frostbite. They would, they would have just been gone. Like we would we'd either lose our hands or we'd just die because we would have no other option other than to survive. We don't have to think about things like that anymore. It's crazy. I told my wife the same thing. I was like, listen, like, I want to have a wood-burning stove, not because I'm some major conspiracy theorist and I think the grid's going to go down. But I'm like, there could be a possibility one day where we could not have gas or power for some reason, whatever it may be, and we would not be able to heat ourselves. And she's like, well, we'd just go over to someone else's house. It's like, they don't have a wood stove either. Like, that's not, like, <laughs> you know, there's just like that, there's a lack of grit in today's society that, like, man... Sometimes I'm like, maybe we need something to happen just to give us a good, uh, good reminder. Yeah, we good, have it way too good. A good wake-up call. Yeah, if you think about the pioneers that sat across this country, and they they didn't have shelter, they didn't have, uh, you know, the only food they had was what they could wag with them because they hadn't set up a society to be able to grow food yet. Mm -hmm. So they had to come across this land that's very harsh in our weather, and. Uh, overcome all these hardships to, you know, to, to eventually hope to get some semblance of a life. Mm. And it, it is amazing that those people survived through all the trials and hardships they survived and made it to the destination that they were headed. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> that is uh, the American. When men were men. Well, that's definitely when men were men. Yeah, when men were when men were men, and there was still wild left in the world. You know, just, there's very few places that there's very few places you can go in modern America where you were at risk of dying from the things out there, and the places that is is like, you know, suburb Chicago, <laughs> like St. Yeah. Louis. You know, yeah. Now it's not the wilderness. Yeah. It's, now it's a stray bullet from gang violence that gets you dead, not a grizzly bear that ate you, uh, or a blizzard uh, that stranded you and uh, snowed you in, and you didn't have any ability to get out of it. Uh, it's crazy that mindset, though. I was thinking about that. After I finished this last book, I was like, man, like the uh, the idea of manifest destiny and the idea that America needs to colonize the rest of America and all the good and bad that went with that, like that ideology of settling the rest of the country has so determined how we are as a society today and where we are as a country, like that I'm gonna go do it and uh, the I'm gonna go do it and I'm gonna have to figure it out and I'm going to uh, be entrepreneurial I'm going to make things like that has been that has carried throughout our country's legacy for like 200 years now and like I can 100% look back 200 years ago and look at these pioneers going out and settling these original farmers and ranchers settling the entire country and I'm like oh that mindset that they were instilled of through Manifest Destiny has basically developed the entire U.S.'s like view of the world and our economy and global economies is like we're just going to keep doing it and we're going to keep figuring it out and like that spirit has remained strong for so long now and i think that's part of the reason we just we had this great land that we ended up we ended up upon and we pushed a bunch of people and killed a bunch of people to get it and we also were told settle it all it's yours now you know it's crazy like uh last little bit of imperialism love it hate it it uh it has propelled the u.s into a place that every other country in the world still envies. <laughs> sure, it has. And I was talking to a young person last week, and, you know, he was asking uh, about some of the things I saw different between when I first started my career versus what I see now. And, you know, some of the... To me, like, as you're in a developed country, the more development that comes, the more difficult it is for you to get off the ground uh, with your individual startup business just because at the beginning of a develop con developing country's life all these industries are in their infancy and there's not uh, the amount of capital out there versus once an industry uh, or an area has become completely established and you've had other business owners there for a period of time uh, over the course of you know maybe a decade or several decades of working that business well they've built their capital supply up so it's a lot more difficult to compete against a, a you know a business that's already set up and developed in a fully developed country versus setting a business up and running one that's in a developing uh, economy where you don't have where you're competing against a other young business, you know, versus you're competing against an established business that's been there for 35 years. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the biggest 
thing that I've seen over the course of my career is it's just harder now uh, because of those factors. We're living in a completely developed society. And uh, with that development, there has been people that are doing what you want to do, uh, you know, for the last 50 years. And they've uh, been able to, through grit and hard work, establish a large amount of wealth. And with that wealth, uh, they leverage it to make it harder for you to succeed because they can lower the price of their product uh, to make sure they have the lowest price product on the market and probably a, uh, a product that's equally as good. You know, they can just produce it cheaper because they've been in the game longer, you know. So as a startup, it, you know, it is a difficult you know, it can be a difficult uh, task to start a business in a fully developed country. That all being said, it's not that it can't be done. Yeah, that's been going on for 100 years now. I mean, the back in the big uh, cattle boom and the cattle bus, um, the big four meat packers, the big meat packers in Chicago, anytime someone would try to open an extra processing facility or open something outside of their control, well, they would just slash their prices and beat everyone on price because it's like, well, we're so big, we can eat this cost a heck of, it's a, it's a game of, you know, I can last longer than you can. So anyone being like, oh man, like we live in such a dystopian society, all these rich com companies control everything. It's like, guys, it's nothing new. Like businesses have been doing this for hundreds of years. It's just, uh, now it's, now it's the company that makes your iPhone or, you know, ships your packages. It's not the, you know, the meat packers. You can, well, you still got to worry about meat packers, but yeah, I don't know. Our it's one of those things. Society. Yeah, we are we are kind of at a more developed point than we ever have been before. But we've been also we've also been saying that for hundreds of years. Like, oh man, we have made it so far. We've done all this. People probably before the internet were like, oh man, we are so developed. Like the world is we're stable. Things are great. Like we figure things out. Internet shows up. Everyone just taught like. And you look at the early days of the internet. There were people who in the first decade of the internet made millions upon millions of dollars. Guess how many people kept those millions and millions of dollars after that? Only a handful, do you know why? Because it speculative market grew, dot-com bubble happens, all these things just crater. The people who played their cards well and planned for that knew, hey, this isn't gonna last forever. We should probably have an actual business strategy behind that. And it happens with every industry. There's super high highs, and as soon as there's a super high high, there's going to be lows. So, yeah, I don't know where we're going with that. Well, I mean, that, I mean, but that shows you, like, we, we do have some disadvantages in being super developed, but, like, with, like you're talking about now, the Internet, that brings a whole new uh, avenue of revenue to you. Basically, a worldwide ability to market to the consumer versus before you were just either in... Uh, your local or regional market. I mean, it was very hard to grow outside of that, where now, you know, with the right logistics and uh, the right website, you can reach customer across the ocean. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it should open up. Uh, a developed country does, you know, create some difficulty, but it also opens up a value, too. So... I guess, I mean, what do you say? I mean, uh, I, I'm very thankful to live in our country, in oh, America. Yeah. 
we have it so easy. I think about that all the time. Like we've been, you know, I didn't grow up with a family with money or anything by any means. I was raised by a single mother, but like I look back, I'm like man, even then we still had it so good compared to, you know, if you've ever if you've ever traveled out of the country to anywhere that's not a developed country, like you realize, oh shoot, like we have so much stuff and so much junk that like most people around the world, a large population of the world, like just looks at the U.S. and they don't care about any of the, you know, developed countries like Europe and Canada look at the U.S. and say, you're horrible. How could you do those things? Your country's falling apart. You go anywhere else in the world, man. The amount of people who I have message me on Instagram saying, we love U.S. farms. I'd love to be in the U.S. I'd love to live there. Like, guys, you know why we have like a, a like an immigrant crisis in the U.S., quote unquote? It's because people really want to be here because it's a really great place to you know, live the American dream that has been toted. It's like, hey, like, you can work, you can work minimum wage here and you will make better money here than you will in, like, probably 80% of the world. You know, like, the X billion amount of people who live on this planet, you know, India's got a billion of them, China's got another billion of them, Africa's got another couple hundred million of them. You know, the U.S. and Europe, which are, like, the primarily, like, primarily developed places in the world, are very like kind of, they're they're like a less than like one seventh percent or one seventh of the entire world population. We've got it good, guys. We do. It, it is a phenomenal country to live in, and you know, I mean, yeah, we we have our problems, but yeah, when you look at the you know at the developing countries and you know, and you see the hardships that those people go through. Uh, it makes you very thankful to live in the U.S. And, you know, Clayton and I were talking about this on the way up here, too. We have, you know, like what, uh, it, like you see bannered around the news and is the immigrant problem that we're having uh, or the migrant problem that we're having in America. And at this point, you know, we've got, I don't know how many millions of people have come in here over the last 20 years. But these people are not U.S. citizens at this point. Um, and they cannot contribute to our society tax-wise. They can only be a burden. But if we would just sit down and patriate these people so that they can be citizens at, at some point. Like, you don't have to make them citizens overnight, but give them a path to citizenship. And I know the people that have done it the right way are going to say, hey, but it took me seven years to get that green card. Look, I, I'm sorry it took you seven years to get the green card, but we have got to do something about all these people that are inside of our economy that are working on a black market economy. You know, the, the U.S. government is not getting any benefit uh, from those people being here. They're being a net loss overall, uh, you know, because they're taking services, but they're not paying back into the system. And if we patriated them, you know, if we gave them ability to, uh, to be registered and, uh, like, to pay tax, those people are willing to pay taxes. They want to be here. They want to participate in our society. Um, yeah, guys, this country was built on, like, this country was built on immigration, and that's another really awesome way to stimulate economies, is actually to bring more labor in, to create more market, to create more demand, like, for things. Like, that is a good thing 
pretty much all around. And I always hear these things. Child is like, oh, terrorism in the U.S. Oh, they're going to ruin our society. It's like, guys, I grew up in California. I worked for an excavation company with like 40 Mexicans. And it was awesome. Like, they are, no joke, some of the nicest people I have ever worked with. I, our country would collapse without the illegal labor that is in this country. I mean, how long have you been, like, since 2001, how long have you heard terrorism, 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 terrorism? I mean, I know that there is terrorist attacks occasionally and that we have some that slip through the cracks. But overall, these people that are coming into this land are looking for a better life. And, you know... I mean, at this point, they're here, and we're not sending them out. So why don't we just allow them to come into the economy? And I know if you're a Republican or, or if you're a Democrat, you're saying, well, they wouldn't vote for my side, or they wouldn't vote for my side. Well, how do you know what side they were going to vote for? You could say, generally, they would be X or Y, but you don't really know for sure once that person comes into the economy uh, who they're going to vote for or what they're going to think. And they're here. So, mm-hmm. you know, at this point they're here. What are we going to do about it? And we can't... Uh, we're not going to now deport 10 million individuals. I mean, for one thing, it's not possible. You know, it's not feasible. We don't even have a workforce capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. So what option are we left with besides just registering them and giving them some type of path to citizenship. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, at that point, they're citizens too. So, and this is the great thing about America. Like, hey, I might not want the exact thing as the guy that just immigrated here two years ago, but if he's a citizen and I'm a citizen, then we have to work together, uh, you know, or we have to vote against each other to get the thing that we went through passed or the uh, elective representative that we want represented us elected um, we have to do that through voting or getting out there and doing grassroots uh, and ultimately none of this stuff happens very fast in America uh, with so many different voices and so much different power uh, legislation happens over years uh, and not days and months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very long process getting anything passed through uh, that is gonna change demographics or it's gonna change industry. Any of these things uh, doesn't happen overnight. So it's not like we put these people on a path to citizenship and our country gets changed overnight. No, that's, that's mm-hmm. not the right way to think about it. Our country will change over time, but it's more like that uh, that crab and bull and water or whatever you want to say, it's going to happen over a slow period of time. And uh, you have so many different factors coming in from so many different directions. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have uh, one side win out over the other. So let's do something about our immigration policy that's sensible and let these people in. And I mean, I know a lot of people are going to argue with me about that, but I, yeah, I mean, that's my point on it. I've been uh, I've been very open about this for a long time because I've I have worked alongside uh, the people that no offense Republicans you guys have been kind of jerks to um, for a decent chunk of my career and I am yet to be 
I am yet to find something that's the the right has told me to believe about these people that actually be true. You know, it's one of those things. I look at our I look at our U.S. economy. I look at first of all the amount of agriculture labor we need in the U.S. The amount of infrastructure labor. I mean, we are we're getting fiber internet trenched into our entire city right now. That project is being entirely run by Hispanic folks. Probably not from did, did not grow up in the U.S. And you know what? They're doing an awesome job. We have been asking for better internet for years, and they're the only ones actually willing to do that work out in the muddy, cold year-round. Like, guys, like, we not only should be open and accepting, I think we, we do need to have good policy, we need to be able to do this correctly, we need to do this well. Um, should Building a wall and saying everyone stay out is not actually gonna solve a problem. It's just they're gonna come, yeah. All that to say, we just, I don't know. You're I'm, right. I'm, They're going to get, like, you could build a wall across the border and, like, shoot people as they come up to it. They're still going to come in. Uh-huh. They're going to come in by boat. They're going to come in by tunnel. They're going to come in by plane. They're going to come in somehow. It's just showing you that you live in an awesome country and yeah. that people want to be here. Amen. Ultimately, they're not all terrorists, you know. They are, uh, they're looking to terrorize the cash register at Dollar General by working there every day, uh-huh. you know? I mean, seriously, I mean, uh, these people are willing workers, and uh, they, look, at the end of the day, we as Americans uh, think that we're too good to do certain jobs. Now, I personally do not. I feel like I will jump in there and do about anything, but there is, uh, sadly, a portion of our population that thinks they're too good for certain jobs. and that portion of the population is still needed to do those hard jobs. And if they're not willing to do it, we need somebody that is. And then we have this big group of willing workers there, but they, we can't use them because they, you know, there's a system put in place where you have to put the people's credentials in there. And, you know, ultimately, if they don't have credentials and uh, immigration comes up, then your business is fine for hiring them, you know? Mm -hmm. So we have to have some common sense policies. And ultimately, I think this falls in the politician's lap. Uh, They've prevented this from happening because of, uh, like they polarized both sides to the point where nothing can get done on this fact. And the news media is probably, it's laying at their feet more than anybody's, but Let's get some common sense immigration policy going and get these people in our economy so they can then pay taxes and they can help shoulder the burden of this infrastructure uh, deal that we got. They can help share the burden of the labor. And if nothing else, it, it, I mean, just think how many people have dreamed that are living here about being American citizens. I mean, you are making somebody's life and their kids' future lives better just through legislation. I mean, you don't get that opportunity very often. And I know this is another thing where we're going to yell that probably, but... told you this might not have been a good idea. (laughs) Hey, we got to talk about more things than just just farming each and every day. I mean, ultimately... uh, There's one thing I know about us folks in the U.S., we're experts on everything, and our opinion is valid on everything. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you mine regardless of whether you like it or not. And, 
you know, I mean, I drive my dad crazy because I, you know, my uh, my dad is, uh, you know, he's very conservative, and I, I I consider myself a conservative too. But I like to think of myself as like a common sense, where I know that like my way of thinking is not always right. There's always a different perspective mm-hmm. or a different scenario um, that you know lends to each situation. So just because of the way I think about things doesn't necessarily make them correct yeah. and vice versa. There's, uh, there's so many different trains of thought and that's what makes America great is the mixing pot of everybody together and everybody's ideals and we all having to work through them, uh, you know, through long-term lobbying and long-term um, getting the thoughts out there to the public so that they can then decide which way we want to move with this and ultimately it's good for society mm. so how long we've we been doing this for we, a while i'm tired okay so we're both tired what uh was that, what was that big thing over there that was spitting flame in the air do you know was no, that a coal I plant i didn't see it it's like a big industrial plant lots of steam everywhere i'm getting to the point there. i'm so tired all i can see is a semi in front of me so we're going to cut this off here. We appreciate uh, you joining us for another uh, episode of the Agriculture Podcast. And, hey, we appreciate you listening. Like, share, and subscribe. Yeah, we'll have something uh, farm-related next week, probably. <laughs> we'll see. Thanks for listening, guys. Sleep tight. It's uh, 8.37 here. It's about Neil and I's bedtime. So. <laughs> All right.